I'd like to ask the bishop to come up and share with us, not about kangaroos, but about the Word of God. reminded me the worst night of my life to this day. I was 15 years old and my friends convinced me to go camping with them. And so we went somewhere upstate, I guess Bear Mountain or whatever. I didn't know what I was doing, so it was the four of us, me and my friend Josh. We had a small tent, then my other friends, evidently they had a big tent. We didn't know to put plastic over, and it wound up a torrential downpour all night of rain. And all night long, the, the tent came down to right over my face, and I was in three, four inches of water all night with my friend next to me. And the only thing I heard all night was my friend's radio. All night, an Australian guy was singing, Tie me kangaroo down, boys. Tie me kangaroo down. All night. So we yelled over to my other friends. Hey, do you guys have any room in your tent? No, no. I said, there's water all over. The tent's all right over our nose. No, no, we have the same problem. The next morning we found out they had a lot of room with plastic. I could have killed them because they knew what they were doing. So anyway, that has nothing to do with the message today. But it, it triggered me. Someone say it triggered him. Oh, I'm still manifesting from that day 50 years ago. My God. All right, well, Lord, we pray you'd bless the word. Help us to understand it. Help us to get through all the kangaroos in our life. Help us to receive from this. In Jesus' name, amen. Any of you ever see a live kangaroo? Not in a zoo, but I mean live. Anybody? One of the great joys of my life to heal me of my fears and trigger me no more. I went to Australia. And I'm doing a conference about 10 years ago. I begged my friend, please, I want to see a live kangaroo. And he said, you really do? I said, yeah. He took me to the backwoods somewhere, and there were like 200 kangaroos running around. So I got out of the car, ran out. He said, where are you going? Don't go there. They're dangerous. I said, ah, I'm New Yorker. And I ran over there, and I started hanging out with kangaroos, taking pictures of them. One of them went up like that. I was going to go, Phew! but. I didn't want to get into a fight with the kangaroo. But anyway, I'm still triggered trying to get released from it. I'm going to have to start all over again, Maritza. You didn't pray for me, did you? Come on now. Lord, get us out of this kangaroo mess. All right, now, we're going to talk about the goodness of God versus man-made religion. We're going to look at the text, Luke 14, verse 1 to 6. Lord, help us. Give us your strength. Yeah. One Sabbath, and of course, Sabbath is in contemporary life, our Saturday, the seventh day of the week. One Sabbath, when Jesus went 
to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. And then he took him and he healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him up? And they could not reply to these things. So as we look at this text, my goal is for us to see the difference between man-made religion, which often misrepresents the goodness of God, and true religion or true Christianity. And so we need to ask ourselves the following questions as I'm sharing. This way we could get something out of this. Ask yourself, do I have a religious belief that hinders others from seeing the love of God? Number two, what is my attitude toward those who are on the margins of society? Number three, is my life shaped primarily by the scriptures or by American cultural values? And number four, do we allow the supernatural power of God to manifest through us to show the love of God? In this particular story, we see Jesus being closely observed by Pharisees. And the Pharisees were often antagonistic to Christ and Christ to them. And we'll see one instance of why that was. And what we want to understand is what was Jesus trying to teach us through this confrontation with the Pharisees and how could it affect us? So who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were a prominent religious group that was active during Jesus' time. They had incredible influence. They were known for their mastery of an interpretation of the law that later became known as the Mishnah. They had an interpretation of the law that they tried to apply to every person in Israel. And much of it was not the Old Testament, but it was religious traditions that they imposed on the Bible. And so by tradition, we're saying man-made interpretations or man-made reasonings that didn't come directly from God's word. So they were masters in these rabbinic traditions and they tried to impose them on everybody in society. They did believe in the supernatural, so they believed in angels and demons, they believed in the resurrection and in the judgment to come. Uh, and they were also very uh, politically influential and so when Jesus had dinner at this home, it says they were watching him or scrutinizing him carefully. And so they were using their religion as a way to bring judgment on people rather than to release them or to show the love of God. So their main objective with their religion was distinguishing themselves from others and imposing their values on others and making a judgment 
based on their own views and interpretation on whether someone's worthy to be with them or not. This is their understanding of religion. And this still goes on today, but I won't get into that right now. And so they were watching him carefully, and behold, there was a man before Christ, right, sitting in front of him, who had dropsy. Now, what is dropsy? Dropsy is a condition involving abnormal swelling with fluid in someone's body. What part of the body? It doesn't show, but uh, evidently it was noticeable. It must have been a big swelling somewhere in the guy's body. And uh, the fact that it says a man was before him shows that these religious leaders probably intentionally sat this person near Jesus because they wanted to test him, they wanted to accuse him, they wanted to agitate him, they wanted to provoke him so that they can get rid of him eventually. So you know how people could put you in certain situations on purpose, whether you're working for somebody and they put a partner with you that they know is gonna bother you or you're gonna get in trouble or there's politics involved, there's different things. Well, that's what was going on here. He was eating, he was trying to just fellowship these people, but they put a guy in front of him that needed healing and lo and behold, it happened to be on the day healing wasn't allowed according to their tradition. It happened to be a day where you were supposed to do no work. It happened to be a day when you were just supposed to rest. And so they did this on purpose to agitate and to, uh, to, to trap him. And so Jesus responded to the lawyers, and it doesn't even say that they said something. I find it interesting. Where does it say that the Pharisees said something about healing on the Sabbath? Nothing. So Jesus responded to what? Their intentions. Jesus knows our heart. You don't even have to say a word. Jesus knows what we're thinking. Jesus knows why we do what we do. You can't fool Jesus. You could project to somebody else. You could be a good actor. You could put a mask on. Actually, the word personality comes from a word that has to do with wearing a mask as an actor in a theater. So you could project whoever you want to be to us on Sunday, but Jesus knows who you are behind the mask. And so Jesus responded to the lawyers. I love that. It's powerful. It's profound. Responded to a nonverbal intent, and he said to the Pharisees, rather, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And so he knew that they were setting him up, and in a similar instance, there was a man with a withered hand who they set up to uh, trap Jesus, but this is in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verse 4, and in a similar situation of Jesus being in front of somebody I believe this time he was teaching, uh, and they sat him in front, a guy who was sick with a withered hand. This is what Jesus said to the Pharisees, the same group. He said, is it lawful, meaning biblically lawful, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good, to do harm, or to save life, or to kill? 
With Jesus, there was no middle ground. He said, is it lawful to do good or evil, to save life or to kill? In Jesus' view, if someone had a debilitating condition that greatly limited them, that greatly impacted their capacity for life, and you had the power to aid them, to help them, or to heal them, and you didn't do anything, Jesus said you have destroyed their life. Do you see that? He said it's evil. But, in other words, in God's mind, there's no choice. It's either good or evil. And so what Jesus was saying to them and challenging them is, I have the ability to heal him. And so if you don't want me to do that, it's destroying this guy's life because it will affect the quality of his life forever. And of course, it doesn't have to just be divine healing if we have the power financially to help somebody. If we have the power with health care, if we have the power you know, with, with some kind of uh, medications or whatever it is, a way of counseling them, giving them therapy, whatever someone needs that is in great, great need. And we have the ability to help somebody, but we intentionally do not do it. We are destroying their life. Jesus, put, Jesus puts it on us. Are you letting this sink in? It's either doing good or doing evil. It's either saving life or destroying life. The words of Jesus, not my words. And so, when Jesus equated this healing of a guy with doing good, it reminds me of Peter's first sermon to Cornelius. That's recorded in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. And as he was preaching the gospel to these non-Jewish Gentiles assembled in Cornelius' house, Part of his sermon was this. He said, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. He went about doing good. Someone say, doing good. And healing. Doing good and healing. You see how doing good was connected to healing. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. That also puts the onus on us to believe God for divine healing for people. People who are sick, people who are distressed, maybe people who don't even know the Lord. I've seen God move even more powerfully with those who don't know Christ outside of the church building when it comes to healing and prophecy and casting demons. I mean, it's amazing. But God gave us faith. He gave us the ability to do certain things in his name and to whom much is given, much more is required. And so when we refuse to pray for the sick, even though they're right in front of us, Sometimes God is going to require that of us because he's inclining us to pray for the sick in his name because that is a great way to express God's goodness. And so what was their response to Jesus throwing down that gauntlet? Said, is it lawful to good or evil, to save life or kill it? What was their response? Well, their response was no response. See, when someone doesn't respond, they're responding. Did you hear what I said? When someone doesn't say anything, they already gave you their answer <laughs> most of the time. I find it very interesting. I'll text somebody back and forth, but as soon as I text them something that requires something or I'm asking them to do something or whatever, 
all of a sudden they go silent. Well, they don't want to say what they really want or they don't want to give a response because then it would show me where they're at. So they think by not responding, they're safe. No, by not responding, you're already telling me your answer. I find that happening a lot. People don't respond conveniently. And so their silence was deafening. And I believe the reason why they didn't say anything was because Jesus trapped them. See, Jesus is so cool. They were trying to trap Jesus by putting a sick guy right in front of them for dinner. He was just trying to have a nice little old dinner. And they put this guy right in front of him. They could have sat him in the corner. They could have sat him somewhere out of sight. They put him right in front. And they tried to trap him, but Jesus trapped them by throwing down the gauntlet and challenge him whether to do good or evil, save life, or destroy it. If they answered, okay, we agree with you, you could heal them, that would have undermined their, their credibility because it would have went against their teachings that you can't do any work on the Sabbath. So they would have lost some of their authority and their authority would have shifted towards Jesus. You see that? So there was like a political shift that would have taken place if they agreed with Jesus. If they disagreed with Jesus, then they would have looked like they didn't have compassion. So they would have looked bad to everybody. So Jesus trapped them and put it right back on them. How many could say Jesus is so cool? Oh, man, it's incredible. And so they didn't answer, and a lot of times people won't answer because they don't want to deal with the truth, because they don't want to look bad, or because they're afraid to get into a dialogue with you because they don't want anyone to move their opinions or positions. I've dealt with people who, you know, they'll say something to me or whatever, and I can't get into all of it right then and there, and I email them a real comprehensive reason why I believe what I believe. And they say, I never asked you to do that, I refuse to read it. So why, what are you afraid of? You can respond to the email, not a problem. There are some people who just don't wanna hear a, another opinion. They don't wanna know the truth. They wanna protect their agenda, their opinions, their sacred cow is living according to their own opinion and the way they want that is more important to them than the truth itself. And there are people like that everywhere, even in the church, immature people. And so what was Jesus' response to their non-responsiveness? I love it. He just did what he wanted to do. He took him and healed him. I find it interesting that after he healed him, he sent him away. Why did he send him away? The poor guy was trying to have a dinner. I believe the reason why he sent him away is because he didn't want this poor fellow to be subjected to the horrific response of the Pharisees. He was protecting him protecting his emotions and his feelings. He sent him away 
because he knew the response of the Pharisees wouldn't be favorable. Sometimes it's best not to expose people to the worst of humanity, right? I mean, don't let your kids watch horror movies. Uh, why do you have to have your spouse involved in every offense you have with people? Why do people have to be exposed to everything you are? Sometimes they're not ready for it emotionally. They're not ready for it spiritually. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And that's why I believe Jesus sent him away. And then Jesus tried reasoning with the Pharisees after he sent this guy away. He said, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a pit or a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out. So he was trying to appeal to their common humanity, which sometimes our interpretation of the Bible goes against common sense, goes against humanity. Maybe we're just too judgmental with people that don't know the difference between their right hand and their left hand. Maybe we just expect too much sometimes. Maybe we think everybody has had the same experience with Jesus that we have had, right? And so we have to be really careful. And so he gives a hypothetical situation that they could relate to. He said, what if your son fell into a pit and it happened to be Saturday? You're going to say, oh, no work today. Let my son die in the pit. Of course not. You're going to pull him up. Then he says, what happens if your ox or what if your little therapy dog fell into a pit? Your service animal fell into a pit. Would you have a nervous breakdown or would you pull the dog out? You know what I'm saying? I've seen it all. They're therapy ostriches. They tried getting on planes, but it's another conversation. Um, There are therapy people that we have with us, <laughs> that we need to have with us. But uh, all right, I'm a therapy person to my wife, you know, and she to me. We keep each other sane. But anyway, so he's reasoning, and he's saying, "What if your son fell into this pit? What are you going to do? Leave it in the leave that person in the pit?" And so here, Jesus is showing the importance of dialogue. Someone say dialogue. And reason. Sometimes Christians think it's wrong to use their brain. God says in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, come, let us reason together. You don't park your brain at the door when you come into church. You should be using your brain. You don't just love God with your heart and your emotions. You love God with your mind. That's why you need good teaching and preaching to develop your thinking, to develop critical thinking skills. That's why it's important to learn how to dialogue. That's why small groups are so important because in small groups you could do Q&A. There's a lot of questions and answers. There's things that we could do that it's harder to do on a Sunday. So Jesus is reasoning with them. He doesn't just condemn them. He's trying to get them to understand from this guy's perspective, how serious it would be if he didn't heal him. 
by saying, what if your son fell into a pit or what if your ox, and an ox is really more important than a therapy dog probably because that was how they made their living. Their whole economy would fall apart if the ox died. Those things were very expensive. So the average person probably couldn't even afford an ox. So in his dialogue, giving hypothetical situations, he was trying to save them. He was trying to bring them to a real understanding of the word through human consciousness. He didn't even quote scripture. He didn't even use the Old Testament. He used human experience. And sometimes Christians can act so inhuman, almost like religious robots, just quoting the word. I remember one time I was pouring my heart out to somebody. I was going through so much. And he just said, just confess the word of God. Jesus, heal him. Help his mind. Last week, some, one of my friends sent me some Twitter from this famous so-called prophet. And he said, I decree that everybody with PSD be free right now. Now everybody's going to be free if they had PTSD. Said, what kind of fool? would think that PTSD is just going to go because you just make a decree. Now, can God do that? Yeah, God could heal someone instantly. But, you know, you give people false hope. It's almost dehumanizing. It's taking away a process that will really work. And so God didn't call us to be Bible robots, just quoting the word and thinking we could snap a finger and say something and it's all going to work. Or even just pray for somebody. Physically, you could get healed pretty quick, but emotionally, it's usually not going to happen with prayer. An instant prayer is going to be process that involves counseling or therapy and, and talking and allowing God to work on us, right? Uh, and so Jesus is trying to win them through a human process of dialogue, he didn't even quote a scripture there. I find that fascinating. How many, am I the only one who finds that fascinating? Do you, are you hearing what I'm saying? Um, and so, but they didn't respond. And they didn't, it's in Mark chapter 3, in a similar situation, it says their hearts were hardened and they were angered and plotted how they would kill Jesus. That was their response. And so Jesus was exposing their inconsistency in logic and even their interpretation of the word by his hypotheticals, by his reasoning. And so what are some takeaways from this short text? To me, I have five takeaways, five ways we could apply this as a church and in our own personal life. Number one, we need to prioritize compassion over compliance. Compassion over judgment. Book of James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. If you're ever in a situation where you don't know whether to judge somebody or to have compassion, then choose compassion and mercy. Because that's what James said. It triumphs over judgment. You're probably going to be Correct, choosing compassion 98% of the time than judgment. 
except for clear instances and violations when people are taking advantage of you and by helping them, you're actually hurting them because you're empowering disobedience, mismanagement of money, and substance abuse. So that's not mercy to help someone who's using the money for drugs. It's foolishness and you're helping them. So we're not talking about that. We're talking about judgments according to uh, instances where maybe uh, mercy would show them the way of the cross and salvation. And in contemporary culture, sometimes even in our religious culture, we have our own set ways. And we don't want to be interrupted. We want to do what we want to do. And we have like, next week we have a perfect opportunity, for example, to change our Sunday. Instead of your rice and beans and pineal or raviolis, what about helping hundreds of families on Sunday? And, and serving them. And I love the fact that our church, um, several months ago, I'm not sure if they're still doing it, but every Sunday we were serving food after church to about 30 migrants and sharing the gospel. Um, and what about when we're just interrupted on a Christmas morning or Thanksgiving, God forbid, with someone who has an emergency. Or what about inviting someone over our house who doesn't have a place to go on Christmas Day or on Thanksgiving? What about having somebody move in with us who needs to get on their feet? Of course, you got to be careful in this day and age. But me and my wife always had somebody living with us as a way of discipling them and helping them. I remember one time it didn't turn out so good. But most of the times, it worked fabulously. Um, so uh, one time, we took somebody in because they needed deliverance, severe deliverance, which means that they were greatly oppressed by demons. And we didn't think one session would help, so we told the person they could move in. And I wasn't crazy about it. I said, all right, let's give it a shot. And after two weeks of trying here and there, you know, nonstop for hours almost every day, the finality was she took one of my guitars and broke it when I was trying to cast demons out or help her. And uh, I said, you know, I think the Lord is saying the time is up here. <laughs> Thank God it was a cheap classical guitar. If it was one of my vintage guitars, I may have backslid temporarily. Anyway. So we need to allow ourselves to prioritize compassion over our own normative activities when given the opportunity. Number two, another takeaway. We need to reflect on the true measure of faith. How do we really measure if our faith is real? Are they in line with God's teachings? Are they in line with the love and goodness of God? And so... A perfect example today would be this. The government has every right to close the borders of migrants. It should, in my opinion, you may disagree with me, this should not be illegal crossing because a nation that doesn't have functional borders is not really a nation. That's my opinion. That's my position. 
However, that's their problem. That's their obligation. That's their role as civic government. And I may vote in a way where it'll help that policy of closing the borders. However, as a Christian, that's not my concern. My concern is loving and helping them. All humans, I don't ask somebody, did you come here illegally or not? Do you have a social security card? No, I'm gonna help you, I'm gonna pray with you. If I can help you get a job, I don't care if you, I don't, you do whatever, you know, in terms of whether you have a social security card or not, I'm gonna try to help you live and survive. That's my job, not just as a pastor, but as a Christian, I want to be able to help every human being. Now, if I was the mayor of New York, I would have to do what I can to, you know, do some things legally to protect the city. As a pastor, I don't have to worry about that. And so you have the heart of God that can be reflected one individual to another without violating a policy or without um, uh, politically having to worry about a policy. So my job is, I don't know why they came, I don't know if God allowed them to come, I don't know. But if you're here, I'm gonna do my best to help you. How many understand what I'm saying? And so, uh, we have to show our true faith by loving people irrespective of who or how they got here or whatever in any way we can. Number three, and I'm proud of our church for doing that. We have a history doing that through Children of the City, uh, just as a church, and we'll continue to do that by God's grace, show the love of God to everybody. Number three, are we inclusive as a community or as individuals, or do we marginalize others based on cultural categories? Oftentimes, even as Christians, we categorize people. He's gay, he's straight, he's trans, and Facebook, there's 49 uh, you know, definitions of identity now. Maybe it's up to 100, I don't know. Uh, or are they left, are they right, are they Republican, are they Democrat, are they this, are they that? And as Christians, we have to stop falling into that trap. We are not to categorize but we are to humanize everybody. When I see somebody in the street, even if in my spirit I know if they're gay, they're straight to this, to that, they're a believer, they're not a believer, if they need my help, I'm gonna help them. I'm gonna treat them with respect. If they're homeless, I'm not gonna look down on them. As a matter of fact, one of the most powerful things I could ever do is when I pull up dressed in a suit because I'm preaching somewhere and this is before GPS and I ask a homeless person directions and when I ask them, I address them as sir. Their face lights up as if I just gave them a thousand dollars and they can't wait to help me. They'll do anything they can to help me because I showed them human dignity. The Christian should always show other people dignity, whether you agree with their lifestyle, whether you agree with their ideology or their religion. Now, I'm not saying if someone's hurting someone right in front of you, you're gonna, I'll show you respect by knocking you out, personally, but 
if you're hurting another person. I'm not talking about that. But in our everyday interactions with people, we need to show the love of God. According to Genesis 128, 126, all of us are image bearers of Christ. Everybody, whether they're Christian or not. And so we need to stop categorizing based on CNN, Fox News, New York Times, New York Post. I don't let the newspaper categorize and frame humanity. I get information, but I do not let them shape my worldview and my my, my, the Bible shapes my worldview, not culture. And number four, we got two more. What is our Christian practice as compared to biblical truth? Do we allow our cultural values to overshadow biblical principles? Are your values, what you celebrate or what you embrace or what you despise, is it based on biblical truth or the culture? So many Christians allow American culture to dictate their values. For example, there are many independent Christians, if there is a such thing biblically. They don't go to church. They're not accountable to anybody. They say, I don't need church. What do you mean you don't need church? And we fall into a trap of this individualism that's in the spirit of our culture, the spirit of the age. In our country, I mean, Thomas Jefferson was great when it came to independence, the American Revolution, to get out of the bondage of England, all that, but his Jeffersonian ethics actually spilled into the American church. And a lot of pastors during the Revolutionary War and after were preaching excerpts from Thomas Jefferson, putting it in scripture, and it has seeped into the body of Christ, and it has been here for 200 years. This rugged individualism, nonconformist, uh, Rambo mentality where, you know, the authorities are always wrong. I'm the only one right, and I'll be the one to fix everything, or I don't need the church. I don't need the institutional church. God is everywhere. Show me that in the Bible. That is not Bible. That is your culture telling you you don't need church. The Bible is written by Jews. Jesus said salvation is of the Jews. And the Jews had an understanding of corporality and body life and community that Americans do not understand. And if you were not in their camp, it was looked at as a curse, not a blessing. A lot of Christians think it's a blessing to not have to be in a church. Well, I've been hurt in church. You are hurting your family. You're still part of your family. You're hurting your marriage. You're still married. Your children have hurt you. You still love them. So why is it different with the church? I've been hurting church more than all of you. I'm still here. When people talk about pastoral abuse. What about sheep abuse? I've had, as we would say in such a park, the sheeps abuse me. What about the love of God? Forgiveness. 
How are you supposed to move on if you can't forgive people who've hurt you? There's no excuse not to be in the church, in the body of Christ. Because you can't fulfill your destiny outside of it. Because you have gifts that I need and I have gifts you need. And together, we're, we're, we're all a body, but alone, we may be a finger, we may be a wrist, it may be an elbow. If you cut off your finger and expect it to function, you're crazy. In the same way, if you think you could function without a church, biblically, there's, I'm going to be nice, some inconsistency with your thinking. Because you wouldn't do that with your human body. Don't do that with the body of Christ. Number five, and there's a lot of other things we could say. You could allow the world's values of sexuality, of identity, of uh, even money be your values. And is it biblical or not? I don't care how you feel as much as I care about what is God saying in the word. I care about how you feel when I'm ministering to you. But at the end of the day, I can't let my feelings dictate my beliefs. Because sometimes my feelings are wrong. Last but not least, we show active love in our everyday life, as Jesus did. He didn't just wait to preach on a Saturday or in a synagogue. Every day he was willing to actively walk out the love of God. There's a story that I'm going to end with that touched me to the point in which I wept when I read it. I read a lot of newspapers, and um, I go to Drudge or Apple News, and I get sources from all over the place. And in Apple News, I saw this a few days ago, this lady named Laura, who's some kind of social media influencer, she crossed the street. She noticed a man asking for money on the corner. And she, she was having a really bad day. Did he, anyone here ever have a really, really bad day? I mean, a horrible day, and you just don't want to deal with anything or anybody? Well, she saw this guy asking for money across the street. His unkept hair and clothing made it seem like he'd been living outside for a while. She watched as he asked a passerby for change, but was ignored. But as I approached him, he turned his attention to me and again asked if he could have a little bit of money. I don't, know, I don't remember what my response was, but I'm glad I don't remember because what I do recall is that whatever I said was very unkind and harsh. I've been there. I've done that. Something to the tune of, leave me the hell alone. I don't have anything to give you. Just bug off. I couldn't quite put my finger on it when she went shopping after that, but the realization of how rude and awful I was to this person hit me like an anvil. I just remember thinking, what have you become? Who are you? So she left the groceries behind, rushed outside to find the man who was still in the street corner. I hustled over to him, began apologizing profusely. I dug out some change that had been in my pocket. And the guy, after he took the change, he took both of my hands, both of her hands, in his hands, and he just said to her, as he looked right in her eyes, it's going to be okay. 
And for the first time in a long time, I felt like somebody saw my soul, peeked into my soul, seeing my own pain. And I started to cry. And she and the man stood together for a few minutes before parting ways. She never saw him again, but if he were here right now, I would love to be able to tell him that at that moment on the street, he gave me some of the few glimmers of hope in an extremely dark period of my life. Imagine if he was a Christian, what he could have done, or if she was a Christian. Take advantage of every moment of your life. Some of the most profound moments you'll ever have have not been planned by you, but planned by God. They happen unexpectedly. They interrupt your everyday life. Maybe when you're rushing to the store, maybe when you're driving, it may be when you're shopping. It may be something else. But it's not a profound or complicated, I should say. It's not a complicated way to live out the story of Christ. Whenever you have the opportunity, even during a dinner, let's show the love and compassion of God. Let's all stand.